Leviticus chapter 18. And chapter 20. I do have a confession to make tonight. I thought I could get through all of this in one night. And we discovered last week that would have been impossible. And I discovered again this week it still would be impossible to do it in two nights. So I'm not even going to put a time limit on it. I know it's difficult stuff to to work through. But I think it's very important that we do work through it. And that we do understand it. And that we are able to answer uh, the revisionists that are they, that abound, that abound in our land, and that the Lord will help us to give an answer of the hope that lies within. So, <clears throat> I'm off next week. Our brother Silas has agreed uh, to take the prayer meeting next week, uh, but I'll be back the next week, God willing, and we'll we hope to conclude then. So. All the, the, the messages have been recorded and we will put that together uh, very soon that you can uh, take them all at one time. So two verses from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22. Mark it in your Bible. And then chapter 20 and verse 13. So there are those and they profess to be Christians even reformed Christians. And they want to rewrite the traditional interpretation of these texts that we've been looking at. And they have tried to come to the what we call the Levitical Holiness Code. And they have tried to reinterpret it and to rewrite it. And of course, they come to such passages as Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.20 20 and verse 13. And they want to rewrite the narrative. And they want to tell us that these are two very obscure verses in a very difficult book to understand. Therefore, they have no application to the age that you and I live in. So what was referenced way back in the book of Leviticus has no application today. That's basically the, the overview of what they're saying. So let's read it together. Uh, Leviticus 18.22 Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Again, chapter 20 and verse 13. If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Now remember what we're looking at here. We're looking at those who profess <coughs> to be Christians, <coughs> who want to rewrite or reinterpret uh, these uh, passages. We call them the traditional passages. Uh, the, the so-called gay Christian lobby say they are the clubber texts <coughs> that Christians use to clubber uh, homosexuals. Oh, I don't accept that at all. That's their 
wording of it. And they, they want, as it were, to show us these texts in a new light that they don't really mean what they've meant for some 6,000 years. I think they're clear. They're unambiguous. And that's why I wanted to deal with the subject here at the midweek meeting rather than the Sunday meeting where there were so many children in the meeting and young people. Because they are very clear in prohibiting same-sex intimacy. Indeed, they go further. They even prohibit interest in the same sex. Sexual interest in the same sex. Because if God prohibits something, not only is the deed sinful, but also the desire. So I have heard people say, Christian people, I heard the local bishop one day here say, that of course the actual physical act was a sin, but the orientation to it was not a sin. So I want to show you tonight that that can't be right. It cannot be right. Much good material has been written uh, on these verses by, by men who have spent a lifetime study of them and who I believe are specialists in Christian apologetics. Apologetics is not something that we in the free church really have ever majored upon, but I think that is a weakness in our, our, our witness rather than anything else. So I would encourage you to read Christian apologetics. You will learn much from it, how to defend your faith. Men like Kevin DeYoung, James R. White, we don't agree, of course, with everything that they say. And as I said last week, there's one thing for sure they would not agree with everything that we say. But on these great issues, uh, they have researched them and studied them in depth. And I would commend their in-depth studies to you. So unsurprisingly, the revisionist has also had to recycle, as it were, the meaning uh, to suit the homosexual sodomite lobbyists. And we're going to try and work through them. We'll discover first what they mean, the traditional interpretation, the conservative traditional interpretation. And then secondly, we'll look at how they've been reinterpreted. And then we'll look at the counter-argument and all as simply as is possible to do. So to understand uh, these uh, verses, uh, we, we ask two questions. What is the sin forbidden in Leviticus 18.20-20.13? And the second question is, are these prohibitions binding on the church today? So the answer to the first question has to be in the context of the book of Leviticus. Everything has to be in context. If you're studying anything in the Bible, it has to be in context. I rarely take a verse out of context, or I'll put it like this, I would rarely deliberately take a verse out of context. Maybe others might see it differently than I do, but I would always seek to put it in the context. So we have to put these two verses in the overarching context of the book of Leviticus. In the book of Genesis, we're taught in the word of God about beginnings. The beginning of all things. The beginning of the world. The beginning of the nation of Israel, etc. In the book of Exodus, we're taught about redemption. How God brought up his people out of Egypt 
uh, under redeeming blood and all of that wonderful imagery of the pilgrimage toward the promised land. But in the book of Leviticus, we're taught about God's holiness. And we're taught about how a redeemed people are expected to lead holy lives. We, we cannot take away from the context of, of what we're studying. As de Young rightly points out, the whole system of Israel's worship assumed the holiness of God as its starting place. You have holy people, that is the priests. You have the holy garments. You have the holy land. You have the holy place. You have the holy utensils. You have the holy objects. You have uh, the celebration of holy days. You have living by a holy law that there might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Is there no relevance there for the church? Of course there is. You and I, likewise, we're called to lead holy lives. We're called to lead lives that represent and reflect something of the, the holiness of Almighty God. In our uh, King James translation, there are 94 matches to holy in the book of Leviticus. If you read through it, You'll come across all of those references time and time again. So the book of Leviticus has all to do with the holiness of God. And even some of the abstract things in it, they teach us about the holiness of God. Because the book of Leviticus, chapter 17 to 27, it came to be, na to be known as the holiness code of Israel. It was how Israel was to live a separate, sanctified life amongst the heathen nations that were round about them. Chapter 18, it's all about holiness as it relates to the family and as it relates to sexual activity. And in this chapter, there are some red lines drawn. So, could we just outline the red lines without reading underneath the red lines? Verse 16, incestuous relationships are forbidden. Verse 18, the taking of a rival wife is prohibited. Verse 19, coming into contact with a menstrual woman is unclean, ceremonially unclean. Not unclean in the sense that it was sinful, but ceremonially unclean. Verse 20, adultery is forbidden. Verse 21, child sacrifice is forbidden. Verse 22, homosexuality is forbidden. Verse 23, bestiality is condemned as a perversion. And then verse 24 to 30, the warning is given. If they became unclean by such contacts, they would be driven out of the land just like the nations, the, the heathen uh, nations of Palestine that went before them. So there is no reason to qualify the prohibition in verse 22 any more than any of the other sexual sins that are mentioned. So how can we reinterpret verse 22 and then not reinterpret all the other red lines that are drawn in Leviticus chapter 18? Notice that the generic term mankind is used, Adamic man. The phrase as with womankind takes us back to God's created order. Everything will go back to the book of Genesis. We have 
In this church, we've spent a lot of time over the years preaching from the book of Genesis because it really is the book of beginnings. All the great deep uh, theology of the word of God is found in those first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis. We can't get away from it. And so we are referred back here to the book of Genesis once again. Uh, Men were designed to have sexual relationships with women and not with men. And the seriousness of the sin is underscored in that it was worthy of the penalty of death. Because this was a, a theocracy. This was a state directly under the, the government of God. We, we do not have that type of civil government today in any nation. Israel was one, one that was set aside from all others. Israel was to be God's holy nation. The sexual ethics of God's ancient covenant people they were meant to be different from the pagan nations that were round about them. And the sexual ethics were patterned after God's creative ordinance in Eden. Not in the pagan uh, idolatrous theories uh, which characterized the, the nations of the Canaanites. So it is plain and obvious that the traditional reading of this text is what it is. It is a prohibition of homosexuality. And there's no amount of revisionism can undo that truth in either chapter 18 or chapter 20. The revisionists, however, come at this in various different ways. And they teach, of course, as there are many Christians today who teach the same, that the book of Leviticus, there's no application for any Christian from the book of Leviticus. For how they live, how they worship, how they react and interact uh, today. So that they teach these prohibitions do not apply in our day, but they only apply to ancient Judaism. Or others blandly put it that these prohibitions cannot apply. And this is the tagline that there are many uh, evangelical Christians throw out there today. We're no longer under the law, we're under grace. As if by meaning of that under grace, you don't have to recognize the law of God because that's the, the consequence of that. So it must be remembered that the prohibitions, they do not, brethren and sisters, they do not, they never did, and they do not today, and they never did apply just to geographical Israel. Divine judgment had already befallen upon the nations who had possessed Canaan before the tribes of Israel took possession. You can read that in chapter 18, verse 24 to 27. Now, there are others who come at this from this revisionist lobby, and they love to point out the things from Leviticus that are no longer practiced today. So, of course, it states here that they... Uh, to lie with mankind as with womankind is an abomination. And then you will get this thrown up to you at all the times. Look at all the other things in the book of Leviticus that are labelled and said to be an abomination. 
And so they, they raise these, as it were, uh, lines of argument from other practices in the book of Leviticus. So they will, they, they, uh, a few of the favorites are, what about wearing mixed fabrics? So the Israelites were not allowed to wear garments of mixed fabrics. What about eating shellfish? What about eating pork? What about uh, eating rare steak? I know some of you like rare steak. Well, you, uh, in those days, you, you would not have been allowed to eat it. What about the ownership of slaves? As Christians today, we don't believe in slavery. Christians of a bygone generation fought against slavery, yet we have it in the book of Leviticus. Is that not an abomination? And so when the, the, the gay lobbyist throws all of those things to the unsuspecting Christian, they're taken off their guard and, and they stutter and, and they step back and, and they, they slink away from these verses as if they, oh, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe they have no relevance today after all. And of course the argument is that there are Christians, and sadly it's right, there are Christians who, who cherry pick the Bible. And they, they say you're cherry picking just two verses out of the whole ancient book uh, with many difficult things in it to understand. So we'll go back to Matthew Vine again. Remember we introduced you to him last week. And he poses the age-old question in his uh, lectures and in his, uh, his writings. Do you believe that it's possible to be a Christian and support slavery? If not, do you believe that Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards were not actually Christians because they supported slavery? Now they've got you. Or have they? James White answered this topic of slavery is sadly very common and in our society epidemic, probably due to it's a word that starts emotions and ends thoughts. Slavery of all kinds has existed throughout human history and continues to exist even to this day. And failure to differentiate reasons for and types of slavery has led to widely inane ignorance of the topic. So, for example, slavery in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, it was there, brethren and sisters. It was there. For example, when the tribes of Israel went to war, they were allowed to uh, take as a, a gain of war into slavery those whom they captured. Even if you were an Israelite, and you sold yourself into slavery. Say you went bankrupt and you had nothing to live on. And your family was destitute. You could sell yourself into slavery. And therefore your owner in capital uh, letters. Or inverted commas rather. Uh, was responsible to look after you. And to look after your upkeep. But all of that. And we'll come to it. We'll come back to it. All of that was very different from the slavery that existed in Rome, in Greek culture. Because in the Hebrew culture and setting, there was the year of Jubilee, when the slaves were set free. And of course, not every slave even that was set free wanted to leave uh, his master. And some of them stayed. 
and took the mark off the master. So when we look at slavery, even from the book of Leviticus, it has to be interpreted in the day in which it was in. And yes, there were great men like uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield, and they argued about slavery. They did argue about slavery, and some of them actually owned slaves. But then we think of other great men of God, and they uh, were champions against slavery. One of my great historical figures that I, I love to talk about is Wilberforce, the great uh, Anglican who championed the cause against slavery and who God saw <coughs> fit to bless and, and uh, saw it brought to an end in the British Empire. There are other revisionists, and, and they'll refer you to the dietary laws of Leviticus. You know the dietary laws. You can't eat shellfish and all the other things in Leviticus chapter 11. <clears throat> and they wrongly have to uh, conclude that, you know, if it's okay today to eat shellfish, uh, it's okay today also to engage in homosexual activity. Now, the two just don't go together, do they? And I'll tell you why. We do not follow the dietary laws of Leviticus chapter 11 today because Jesus repealed them. In Mark 7 and verse 19, Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, Do ye not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? It doesn't matter what you eat, it can't defile you. One of my favorite passages was here's in Acts chapter 11. Remember that vision that Peter got and he saw all of these uh, different types of unclean beasts and uh, God told him to rise and eat. They were no longer unclean. He could now partake of them. The dietary laws, of course, did differentiate ancient Israel from the nations round about them. But we know from the New Testament very clearly that in this age that we live in, they have all been done away with in Christ. We are not geographical Israel. We are spiritual Israel, yes, but we're not geographical Israel, nor I don't know of any of you uh, by blood or of the lineage of Israel. But in Christ we have been freed from those dietary laws. So, the laws have changed in some respect. In some respects, yes, to the dietary laws and, and other matters that distinguish the Jew from the Gentile. For example, we, we do not have to worry today about whether our garments are of mixed material or not. I think you all tonight are, are probably wearing garments of mixed material. Are you breaking God's law? No, you're not breaking God's law. Certain portions of Leviticus are obviously no longer binding because uh, the, the legislation concerning the high priest in chapter 21, it can't be binding. Why? Because the priesthood today is no longer needed. We have no more need of priests after Christ. Christ is the final great high priest. We have no more sacrifices after the sacrifice of Christ because he was and is the eternal sacrifice. 
many portions of the book which pertain to a morality are still obviously binding. Now, how do I know that? Well, civil government does change. Ceremonial laws do change, as we've seen. The, 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 all of that ministry of the high priest and all of the lower orders of priests, it's all been dispensed with in Christ. All of that has been done away with. But what's the moral law? The moral law is the Ten Commandments. And that still stands. Jesus quoted from the book of Leviticus. Remember when uh, the, the, the question was put to the Savior Master, which is the, the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So what was Jesus doing here? He was taking the first four commandments, Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. He was taking the, the final six commandments that relate to our interaction with others, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And where is he quoting from? Well, he was quoting from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19 and verse 18. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. In our confession of faith in chapter 7, and in chapter 19, those, those sections of the law in the book of Leviticus, they're all differentiated. <clears throat> I didn't bring the confession with me tonight, but you can go home and read it. Chapter 7, God's covenant with man. And chapter 19, about God's law. Uh, we have the, the ceremonial law differentiated. So the ceremonial law governed all of that aspect of ancient Israel, the sacrifices, the Levitical priesthood, uh, and all the preparation of the sacrifices, and all the ceremonial uncleanness that is spoken of. That's all under that ceremonial law. It's all done away with in Christ. And then theologians talk about, in our confession, and other Reformed confessions, uh, the Savoy Confession the, the, of Independency and the, the Baptist Confession, 1690 something there. No, that's the Battle of the Boyne. Uh, the, the late 1600s. Uh, it's a replica, in essence, of the 1647 Westminster Confession of Faith. And it all says the same thing. So the Reformed Church has always held us that the ceremonial law has been finished. The civil law which governed the nation of Israel, cannot govern Gentile nations because we're not, on, we're not a theocracy. We're, we're governed different ways, but we're not a theocracy. We're not directly under Almighty God. That's why we don't put people to death for these sexual sins as they did in Israel all of those years ago. But what are we under? We're under the moral law. Because the moral law of God is unchanging. Morality never changes. If it was right for Adam and Eve to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, it's still required of you and I tonight. So, whilst the entirety of Leviticus is obviously not all applicable today, neither is it all inapplicable. God's moral law it's unchanging and it stands unchanged 
And that is why we, we cannot allow a men like Matthew a Vine to reinterpret Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. We would be failing God. We would be failing the souls of those indicted by those texts if we let go of them. So there are two texts there. We looked at Genesis 19 last week, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. So there's the fourth area. We'll move on to it tonight and we'll finish in this one. The fourth passage, which the revisionists, the homosexual apologists have tried to revise, is that great chapter in the book of Romans chapter 1. Go with me there, please. Romans chapter 1. Again, I can only give you an outline of this here. But Romans chapter 1, verse 26-27, it says, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meet. So again, the literal, conservative, traditional uh, meaning is unambiguous. I don't think any reasonable mind who loves the word of God and wants to seek a, a faithful interpretation of it could come to anything different. Lesbianism and male homosexuality is described here as the practice of those in our authorised version uh, of those who have left the natural use of the body and go against nature. Stronger than that, it says, burning in their sinful lusts one toward another. Men working with men, that which is unseemly. William Hendrickson, in his uh, famous commentary, he defines what is meant by the use of natural, simply as natural intercourse. The general reference to sexual sin is very specific. It is homosexuality and lesbianism that is referred to here. Hendrickson is very plain. It is clear, he said, the apostle is censuring the willful practice of homosexuality or sodomy. According to the plain teaching of Scripture, sexual intercourse was intended for a husband and wife, for no one else. All else is contrary to God's will, and it's in conflict with the Creator's intention. Why as a church do we have to apologize for that? We do not need to apologize for that. We need to stand firm upon it. As has well been said, when man forsakes the author of nature, he invariably also forsakes the order of nature. Now again, we have to put everything in its historical context. I was reading John MacArthur. He has written extensively, of course, in this too. <clears throat> and uh, he writes history, of course, shows that homosexuality was common in first century Rome. Rome, of course, uh, imbibed it from uh, uh, the Greek culture. 
And it's often spoken of without a sense of shame by Roman writers. Homosexuality was prohibited neither by religion or law in Rome and was acknowledged. At times, the Roman Empire specifically taxed, approved homosexual prostitution and even gave boy prostitutes a legal holiday. Same-sex marriage was legally recognised. And even some of the Roman emperors married men. For example, at the very time Paul was writing, Nero was the emperor. He had taken a boy named Sporus and had him castrated. He then married him with a full ceremony, brought him to the palace with great procession and made the boy his wife. Later, Nero lived with another man and Nero was the wife. So today, as a land, what have we done? We have just reverted back to paganism and heathenism. Our Christian heritage has been sold for paganism and heathenism. But there was one nation amongst all of this immorality and one culture in which this sin was seen for what it was. A sin against the creator. And that was in the little nation of Israel. And amongst the Jewish diaspora. And we of course. Who inherit that Judean uh, Christian morality. We ought to rejoice. That that standard of morality. It revolutionized the cultural practices of its day. There are modern church people today in the contemporary church and and they say that they make much ado of the fact the church has to be cultural, the church has to be sensitive to culture, the church has to be up to date. You hear all of these in vogue terms. Now I want to go back to the first century and I want you to look at the church in the apostolic day. And was Paul cultural? Paul was anti-cultural. Paul was going in Romans chapter 1. Against the culture of his day. The very emperor. Of Rome. Was living. With another man. In various. Perverse relationships. And Paul dared to write down the law of God and prescribe the law of God in a day in which the culture was against the Ten Commandments. So there's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. The church was never meant to be cultural, as it were, going with, with with the current. The church was always meant to go against the current when it comes to these matters. We are culture, uh, counter-cultural. The church ought to be counter-cultural to the sinful norms of the day. And I don't see anything that can differentiate our stand in 2022. Romans 1 reinforces <coughs> Leviticus, Genesis, rather than rewriting what we've already learnt from the Hebrew uh, scriptures. 
Paul, in verse 13 to 32, he concludes that homosexuality, just like idolatry, it is a rebellion, it is a rejection of the great design of the Creator. So in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. In verse 19, the wrath of God is revealed through the punishment of the unrighteous. Verse 19 to 20, I'm just scalloping through this. It teaches us that none are innocent, are wholly innocent. Why? Because none are wholly ignorant. Why are none wholly ignorant? Because from the natural world of creation all round about him, we're taught that there is a God, there is a lawgiver, there is a creator. And from the law of God written on the consciences and the minds of all of creation, the Bible teaches that all are left without excuse. The wrath of God is revealed in that those who rebel and reject God are handed over to greater iniquity. And we read about that, verse 24. This is the introduction, really, to verse 26, 28. Verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Dishonoring. And that wrath will be revealed further on the day of judgment, chapter 2 and verse 5. So Paul in chapter 1 explained how this revelation about God had been suppressed in three different ways. And you can't suppress the truth. And the sinful heart of man knows how to suppress the truth. Verse 21 to 23, they exchanged the glory of the mortal God for the foolishness of idolatry. Verse 24 to 25, a further downgrade is evidenced when they exchanged the truth and they accepted the lie. They, they, they exchanged the truth of God, of his creatorship, of his holiness, <clears throat> of his plan for mankind, and they accepted the lie. And that's what this world has done today. It has accepted the lie. As I said last week, I, even in the past 15 years since I've come back from Kenya, I cannot get over, really, the change in society here in Northern Ireland. It is... It is Unbelievable that now we even have churches, or or at least people within the edges of mainstream Protestantism here, and they're advocating for change. They're advocating for it. And they're trying to reinterpret all of these traditional texts of God's precious word. They believe the lie. And when men believe the lie, God gives them up to further uncleanness and impurity. The word that's used here is associated with sexual immorality. Verse 26 to 27, there's a further a progression into sin because that's what always happens. You reject the creator, you accept the lie. What happens? Well, you just go further and further from the creator and from the truth and from his revealed will. And now we find society discarding the natural complementarian uh, relationships between men and women for sexual relationships with those of the same sex. So it's clear from the writings of Paul that homosexuality is but one example 
Just but one example. <clears throat> there are certain people, Christian people, and they want to make it to they want to make it to be the supreme example, but it's not. It's one example of the rebellion of the human heart that has turned from the worship of God to the worship of idols. There are those <clears throat> and amongst the, the homosexual lobby, and they argue that, that what is alleged here, the, the, the subject is one of pederacity. I'm sure you haven't come across that word, and I had to research it and, and look it up. But it's a relationship in ancient times between an adult male and a boy. It's not, it was not abuse in the form of pedophilia as we know it today. But it was an accepted relationship. It was most common between a master and a slave. But not, not a, just confined to, to that type of relationship. <clears throat> but that can't be the relationship that is spoken of here. It can't be the relationship that is spoken of here. Because it's not a master-slave relationship. Paul speaks of, of each burning with desire one toward the other. And Paul also speaks of the women here engaging in the same. So this is not, it is not what Matthew Vine and his, his apologists would have us to believe whatsoever. When man forsakes the author of nature, he inevitably forsakes the order of nature. <clears throat> and that's what's happened today in our little land. They have forsaken God. They have forsaken the order <clears throat> of creation and they've got lost in moral confusion and chaos. What a plight we're in. We've never been as well off financially and we've never been worse off morally. What a plight our little land is in. Another line of argumentation here presented by the revisionists is that Paul had in mind those heterosexual people who were lusting after new experiences. In other words, the argument you see is using, or to use the, the modern day vocabulary, they were, they were drifting from their normal uh, sexual orientation. I'm not, I'm not agreeing with that terminology. I'm just saying that is the terminology that is, that is used much has been debated over the word for natural in Romans one twenty seven. A lot of the new translations use different words for it. <clears throat> but Strong's Concordance linked with her AV translates that word natural as physical. Therefore it is something that is physically, naturally, instinctive. It's something that physically, instinctively you, you react to. Uh, and thus it's clear that the problem is not excess loss. But it is still the giving up of the natural, sexual, complementarian relationship with the woman for a man. Or the woman with a woman. So the context of Romans 1 again is linked in with the Genesis account. Isn't this amazing? It's all back to Genesis and the creation account. Verse 20, the creation of the world is referenced. Verse 25, the creator is mentioned. Verse 23 uh, is a reflection of Genesis 1 and 30. <coughs> uh, uh, Kevin DeYoung 
Uh, I think he points out very nicely in verse 23, the Greek in verse 23 mirrors the Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament scriptures in Genesis 1.26. So the Old Testament was translated into the Greek by 70 scholars, <coughs> and many biblical scholars believe that is the, the Old Testament that uh, was quoted so often even in the Gospels. It was widely used in those apostolic times. And it's just a reference back there to Genesis 1.26. So Paul, in this context of Genesis 1 to chapter 3, he's emphasizing what? He's emphasizing again the male-female complementarian relationship. And, and we, we just have to stand here on the script principle. Homosexuality is sinful because it does violate the design of the great creator. And verse 28-32 reveals the seriousness of that rebellion. And there's a long list of other sins there. And that's why I'm saying to you, uh, there are certain Christian people like to lift this sin up above all other sins. But God puts it amongst, <laughs> amongst this whole list here at the end of chapter 1. We'll not take time to read it there. But you read through it all. Verse 29, oh, a real list there. Verse 30, verse 31. Uh, just... A real description of a moral corrupt society. And in the middle of it all, a, a prospering homosexual community. It all goes together. What, what addresses sin, men and women? What addresses the sin of adultery? The gospel. The law of God. What addresses fornication, sex outside of marriage for unmarried people? What addresses it? It's the law of God, the gospel. What addresses covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, all of those other things? What addresses it? The law of God, the gospel. <clears throat> and what addresses homosexuality? Just the same. The law of God and the gospel. That we're all lawbreakers. We're all covenant breakers. And what's the only answer? The life-giving power of the gospel of the amazing grace of God. The same blood cleanses the homosexual as the adulterer or the fornicator. There's no other answer other than the gospel. Chapter 2 We'll not go there now, but it further expands in this. You know, Paul, maybe he, he felt his Jewish readers would feel self-satisfied here because these were sins that the Jews would attribute it to the, to the, the Gentiles. But in chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, he reminded them, there is no respect of persons with God. No respect of persons. All sin is sin, including sodomy. And it all needs the forgiveness and the grace of God. So we cannot allow gay revisionists or anybody else to, to take Paul's word, <coughs> which are really words of condemnation, and try to twist them into be words of commendation. The condemnation still stands, and it stands for all who are outside of Christ. 
because all are lawbreakers, covenant breakers, under the judgment of Almighty God. And what is our answer? Our answer is the same to one and to all. And it is to repent and to believe the gospel. There's nothing else. I hope these are difficult passages, I know, to to grasp, to understand, but I hope you have a better understanding of them as a result of our time together. And I hope, I pray, that God will give to us a greater love, a greater love for those named under them, that will see them wonderfully delivered and saved by God's wonderful grace. Nothing I've said tonight and nothing we as a church should say should come forth from a heart full of hate or malice. It should come forth from a heart full of love and full of desire to see those that are under condemnation brought to the place of salvation and delivered and transformed by God's wonderful grace. We're going to come before the Lord in prayer. We have much to pray about, not just all this uh, 